0: Yeah, let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. Yeah. So it says in the book of Isaiah that the Lord looks upon those not that just study the word, not just, just hear the word, but that tremble at the word. And what that, te- what that tells us is that we haven't really heard God unless we find that we're trembling inside, right? And what we're going to look at this morning, we're continuing to go through the book of 2 Kings. I promise we'll finish this year. <laughs> there are things that, you know, it's interesting about going book by book through the Bible. It leads you into aspects of God that is really easy to ignore for years or decades. And that's what's going to happen this morning. And what I hope is that we find ourselves trembling a little bit. So it's in 2 Kings chapter 21. We are going to now get to the most evil king of the evil kings, this guy named Manasseh. Verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Don't ever let your 12-year-old run everything. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven. They worshipped the sun, moon, and stars in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. Those are the guys that they interact with demons, but they tell you they're interacting with the dead. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they would be careful to do all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil Than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before, chronologically before the people of Israel and by the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants to the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, or the Canaanites, who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hear of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. That was the northern kingdom that was already destroyed and exiled by Assyria. He's saying... The measurement that I did with them, I'm now doing with Judah. And shortly after this, the Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem and Judah. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem from one side to the other. Infanticide, abortion, murder, in every level of society. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. So Manasseh was a bad guy, right? Right? And what's interesting is verse 2 and verse 9 are the same thing is repeated, and it's the theme of this entire description. And here's what it says in verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That was the Canaanites. The Canaanites, the general term, Specifically, they're the Philistines, the Amorites, and all these different seven tribes. And then in verse 9, it says, But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So this passage about King Manasseh and the southern kingdom of Judah, it says that they weren't just more evil than the kings before them. They weren't just more evil than Israel, the Northern Kingdom. They were more evil than the Canaanite nations that they drove out and destroyed. And the the point is critical. Here's what the author's saying: What's about to happen to Judah by the Babylonians is to understand it, you need to understand what happened to the Canaanites by the Israelites. To understand one is to understand the other. Now, you guys know that do, if you've read the book of Joshua, First and Second Samuel, there was this driving out and destroying of the Canaanite nations by the Israelites. Under you guys read the book of Joshua. And then it happened by the judges who followed Joshua. And then the prophet Samuel was engaged in it. And then David, who kind of wrapped it up. And, and, and this whole issue of driving out the Canaanites was, is described in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, when Israel was at the end of the Jordan River after wandering in the desert for 40 years... Moses hears from God and gives them the book of Deuteronomy, which is how you take the promised land and keep it. And it said in verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Sometimes all seven nations are just referred to as the Amorites. Sometimes they're just referred to as the Canaanites. Kind of summarize. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. That's kind of intense. So here's what happens when you look at passages like this, Deuteronomy 7. You have all these philosophers, lots of theologians, lots of pastors, Bible school teachers, and they say God's command to destroy the Canaanites for them is the most embarrassing thing in all the Scripture. It's the one thing they wish was not there. Because they say it's immoral and unjust. They claim that it's immoral to kill the innocent, and at the very least, women, children, and animals were innocent and were caught up in this. Right? Not only do they claim it's immoral, they claim it's immoral to target a specific ethnic group for destruction. There's a word for that. Genocide. Ethnic cleansing. They claim it's unjust to kill people just to take their land. They say there's another word for that. It's not only murder, but it's theft. And the the popular term nowadays is colonization. Right? Right? Now, are these critics right? Was the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites immoral and unjust? Is the God of these stories cruel? That's why there's a ton of commentaries that say the God of these stories isn't the God that Jesus is. That was Israel's misunderstanding of God. The problem is, is Jesus affirms the entire Old Testament. So does Paul and all the other New Testament writers. So they didn't think that. Are the Israelites in these stories wicked? How are we to understand Israel's conquest of Canaan? So we have these two little verses, 2 Kings 21.2 and 2 Kings 21.9. And what these two little verses do is they provide a context, they provide a lens to understand why the Babylonians are about to destroy Judah and why God is going to lead the Babylonians to do that. But they do more than that. They also look back to the Israelites' conquest of the Canaanites and they do something. They explain what happened in two little verses. So if we're gonna understand the rest of the book of 2 Kings, and if we're gonna understand in the past books like Joshua, 1st and 2 Samuel, these two little verses are gonna give us a lot of light. Let's look at them. Verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations, whom What's, what, what did I highlight there? Say it out loud. The Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So, who's the subject? The Lord. Verse 9. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom what? What does it say there? The Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Wasn't that interesting? The subject is the Lord. It says, The Lord drove out the Canaanites, the Lord destroyed the. Canaanites. But when you read Joshua, Judges, and First and 2 Samuel, what you find is it's the Israelites who drive them out and the Israelites who destroy them. So if that's the case, why does the author of 2 Kings say the subject was the Lord? Do you, and this is Israel was not waging war against the Canaanites because they were nationalistic or because they were zealous. They were waging war because they were obeying God's command. God commanded it. And so they obeyed it. And it says this everywhere in the throughout the scriptures. Here's one example. Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Here it is in bold. As the Lord your God has what? Commanded. And you need to get, you need to, this command, which was unique to this event, okay, this isn't a command that is for all of history, it was unique to this event, was not a sense from the Holy Spirit. It was not an impression during ministry time. It was the audible voice of God given to Moses. And that audible voice was confirmed by incredible, visible, miracle signs and wonders. You understand the difference? On Mount Sinai, at the parting of the Red Sea, at the parting of the Jordan River, these are serious signs and wonders, undeniable. God is perfectly righteous. God is perfectly just. And God is perfectly loving, not in some of his ways, in what? All of his ways. If that's true, everything he does is right and everything he commands is right. You can't say that about you. Deuteronomy 32.4, his works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Well, that's clear, right? There's only one being that is maximally great, that is perfect, and it's God. So what does this mean? If I take someone's life, it might be murder. There's different reasons for taking life. There's justified reasons and unjustified reasons, right? It might be murder. Why? Because I can be, it could be because I'm being immoral. I have a sinful motivation. I have an evil motivation. So me taking that person's life could be murder. By the way, the Ten Commandments does not say, thou shalt not kill. It says clearly in Hebrew, thou shalt not murder just so you know that. (laughs) However, God can give life and take life as he chooses. God can extend somebody's life, like Hezekiah, who you guys heard Brooke talk about, or shorten someone's life as he chooses. He is the creator of the world. He is the giver of life. He has that right. Well, no, he doesn't. He's God. You're not. He's perfect. You're not. And God lets Israel know lots of times. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I even, I am he. There is no God besides me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. He has that right. If God kills me now, it's not immoral. Why? Because God would, ne- ha- would not make a decision that contradicts who he is. God doesn't make an action that is sinful. He doesn't have an evil intent. None. His decisions and actions, everybody say always. Always, always flow from what? What? Who he is. Do you know what's the problem with thousands of Bible teachers around the globe? They're projecting themselves onto God. He is perfectly righteous, just, and loving. Everything he does is moral. So if it is a clear unmistakable divine command it cannot be immoral obeying it do you understand some acts some things that we might do without a divine command could be sinful but what about if it's with the divine command can i give you an example anybody ever read the story of abraham and isaac God says to to Abraham, hey, go take your son Isaac and put him on an altar as a sacrifice to die. Right? Now, he didn't know that God was going to provide a substitute. He didn't know. He actually figured God will have to raise him from the dead if this happens because of the promise given to me about my sons. But, to place his son Isaac on an altar as a sacrifice, listen to me, without a divine command, could be attempted murder. But Abraham is obeying God, and so his act is a moral act. To kill Canaanites without a divine command could be murder. Murder. But the equation changes if God commands it. Now, this is going to offend the pride of all of humanity. They don't like that there's God. But you might say, well, how is that any different than a Muslim jihadist? He kills a bunch of infidels. Why? In the name of Allah. The Quran says to It says, kill infidels, and they say, they actually believe that the Quran is literally hearing the words and writing it down, right? The Quran doesn't even have personalities of the writers. It doesn't have a human element. Like, our Bible is fully human and fully divine. They believe the Quran is only divine. Dictation. Now, couldn't the jihadists just say they're obeying a divine command? What's the difference? The difference between the jihadist and the Israelite back then, the difference is the God they're serving. Yahweh, the God of Israel and of the whole world, He's the true God. He's perfect in all His ways. And, he, and he's shown us from creation to the parting of the Red Sea to the resurrection. He's the guy. He is perfectly good and he's essentially good. It's, it's his nature. It would be impossible for God not to be good. Just like it would be impossible for an apple not to be an apple. An apple can't say, I'm an orange. No, you're an apple. God must be who he essentially is. The, and who is the true God? This is also going to offend large portions of humanity. He is the God of the Bible. His attributes include absolute, if you are you all wisdom, absolute wisdom, guess what, you'll never make a bad choice. Ever. If you're, Absolute justice, you'll never be unfair ever. Absolute loving, you will never not care ever, right? The problem with the Muslim jihadist is not that he believes it's right to obey God's command, the problem is he has the wrong God. That's the problem. If you read the Quran, the Allah of the Quran is not just. He's, compri- you know what the word capricious is? Yeah. He just, if he has a bad temper one day, Allah's will is done. If he's got a good temper one day, Allah's will is done. I was in a mosque in Dearborn, Michigan with a bunch of Bible college students, and the Imam taught us for two hours, and we asked him about how do you know if you're going to go to heaven? How do you know if you're going to go to paradise? And he said, oh, Allah's will. He said, there's a saying in Islamic literature that a man can be righteous his whole life, but if he kills a cat, Allah might say, you go to hell because you killed a cat. He says, another man can be evil, wicked his whole life, but then he saves a cat on the side of the road, and Allah that day might say, oh, you go to heaven because you saved the cat. He says that the God, Allah, is not a just God. He's capricious, can be good-tempered, bad-tempered, like a human father. He's also not loving. The Quran does not say love your enemies. He despises and hates them. The Allah of the Quran does not have the same nature and character as Yahweh, who is the only true and living God. But it still leads to one more question. Why did God give the command to the Israelites? Did God command the Israelites to commit genocide if he did wouldn't that command contradict his character right well these two little verses also answer that 2nd Kings 22 21 2 and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord everybody say drove out That's verse 2, drove out before the people of Israel. Then in verse 9, But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord, what's that verb? Destroyed before the people of Israel. So verse 2 says, drove out the Canaanites. Verse 9 said, destroyed the Canaanites if you're going to understand the conquest of Canaan, you have to understand though the order of those two verbs is really important. What did God say earlier? Book of Exodus, chapter 23, verse 23 to 31. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, What happens when an angel goes in front of you? All the walls of a fortress city fall down in literally a microsecond, right? And I, what does it say there? Blot them out. That's verse 23. But then go to verse 27. I will send my terror before you. I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, which shall, everybody say, drive out. Drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not, there it is again, drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, here it is again, I will what? Drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall, here it is again, drive them out before you. The emphasis is always in these passages Israel is not first to destroy them. Israel is to drive them out of the land. And if the Canaanites leave the land, there is nowhere a verse about pursuing them, hunting them down, and killing them. Nowhere. Only the Canaanites that refused to leave were to be destroyed. The ultimate aim is n- the aim is not Canaanite destruction. It's land possession. And the book of Deuteronomy literally begins with God reminding the Israelites that, hey, I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob this land to you. Deuteronomy 1.8, see I have set the land before you, go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Everybody say "This this is important. This is not land Israel chose to take. This is land God chose to give. Well God, you can't do that. He's the creator of the earth and everything that's in it. He has the right to give whatever land he wants to, to whomever he wants. You, the only reason why you wouldn't believe that is if you don't believe there's a creator of the earth. Well, good luck with that if you believe an eyeball with one million interconnected functional working parts, happened by chance. God chooses places for people and he sets the boundaries of nations. I'm going to give you one verse. There's many more. Deuteronomy 32.8 when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind and fixed the borders of the peoples. Who did that? God. So, but why give Israel the land of Canaan? Israel was the weakest nation on earth. What entire nation where 100% of the citizens are slaves for 400 years? That's weak. Oppressed. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 to 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. God actually looked at the planet and said, who's the weakest, most oppressed, most beaten down people I can find? Because I'm going to use them just to make an example to everyone else. but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Everybody got that? The Jews are not loved more than other people. God just keeps his promises to forefathers. God chose Abraham and his descendants. Why? Because he knew he was going to become a man. He knew a Messiah, a human being that would be God in the flesh was going to show up on the planet and he had to do it through some family, right? But if you're going to do something on that scale, you don't do it immediately. It takes thousands of years to prepare for, that, for something on that scale. And so God picked a family, He's got this people that he has to make sure Satan doesn't wipe them out. The moment he gave the promise of the Messiah to Eve in Genesis, the serpent is going to try to kill that seed. So God said, man, I got to pick a people, but I got to protect them because Satan's going to constantly going to try to wipe them off the planet. So he said, well, the best way to protect them is they got to have a land, a place where they can walk with me, learn, grow, and be protected. Right? So, he, get, so he, he chose a people and he chose a place. Israel was the chosen people. Canaan was the chosen land. Well, I don't like that. Do you understand why the acceptance of God's plan should bring humility to all the nations? It offends their pride. Again and again, the scriptures are clear that Israel's first priority was to drive out the Canaanites from the land. The command to destroy them was only for those that refused to leave. In other words, it's not ethnic cleansing. It's not genocide. It's not, let's kill the Canaanites because they're Canaanites. It was a dispossessing of the Canaanites from the land so that Israel could possess the lamb as promised by God. When you look at all the passages about the conquest of Canaan, the verbs dispossess, drive out, and thrust out are found 33 times. The verbs destroy, annihilate, and eliminate are found 11 times. So the dispossession words outnumber the destruction words by three to one. That's important. But you might be asking, okay, I get Israel inheriting the land, but there's still a problem here. What about the Canaanites losing the land? They've been in the land for 400 plus years. It's not right just to drive them out. Isn't that what it, you would think? No, it's not. We're in it, It's different. It, it Sorry. Yeah. It is a little. it. This command is not an eternal. This command was just for an, a particular historical time frame so that Israel could be established in the land. You can't, there, it's a, the, the current context is different than the historical context. It, I'm not saying God's not involved in what is happening, but it's a little different when we look at what's happening now through both the whole scriptural lens, Old and New Testament. Oh, I can't go there, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> How is it moral, just, and right to dispossess a people who lived in that land for centuries. Right? Is that not the question? Well, guess what? These two little verses answer that too. These are the most amazing two little verses. Verse two And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Everybody say, despicable practices. Pick your word, abominable, completely disgusting, horrific in every way. Just pick what English word you want to use to. Verse 9. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil, everybody say evil, than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So in the context of driving out the Canaanites, destroying the ones that remain, twice the author of 2 Kings mentions something. Despicable practices of the Canaanites and the evil of the Canaanites, of those nations. When God gave Abraham the promise of the land, he says, Abraham, Abraham, Here's the borders. Here's the land I'm going to give you. Which those borders were not taken until King David, by the way. Why didn't it happen sooner? 400 years passed between Abraham and Joshua. Why so long? Come on, God, just get this done with. What are you waiting for? God says, I am waiting for something. Genesis 15:13 to 16. Then the Lord said to Abraham, "Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there or slaves there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and after so God to Abraham already prophesied the plagues on Egypt. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Sometimes a generation is 40 years. Many times, scripturally, it's about 100 years. A lifetime of of an ancient person, typically. Here's the reason why. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What is God saying? You're not coming back for 400 years until their sin has reached full measure. Until there's a point when they are so wicked, so evil, so abominable, there's a point where you just say enough. But that took centuries. Centuries. God would not let Israel drive out and destroy the Canaanites until their corporate sin reached full measure. The, 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 the dispossessing and destroying of the Canaanites can only be understood in that context. Deuteronomy 9, 4-5, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But he repeats himself. Because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And one other reason, that he may confirm the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Israelites were nothing more than this. They were God's instrument of judgment, capital punishment on the Canaanites. Now, often scripturally and historically, God will judge a city or a nation through a miraculous event in nature. A flood upon the planet, fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes, though, God doesn't use nature, God uses another nation. And God used a nation to judge another nation. So in this example, Israel was God's instrument of judgment upon the Canaanites. In a later example in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, Israel is committing the same sins as the Canaanites. So who's God's instrument of judgment on Israel? Assyria. And now Judah is committing the same sins as the Canaanites. Who's God's instrument of judgment on Judah? The Babylonians. And that's even prophesied about in this passage. To understand the severity of the judgment on the Canaanites, you you have to understand the severity of their sin. In the Bible and in other historical records, and we have a lot of archaeological records about what was normal, With the Philistines, what was normal with the Canaanites? They normalized to be a part of every normal everyday life idolatry and demonic worship, witchcraft, black magic, sorcery, necromancy. It was normal as brushing your teeth, incest, but all their their greatest God in their mythology was having relations with his, quote, sister. And it became as normal as everyday life. Adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, bestiality, child sacrifice, violence. This was as normal in Canaanite culture as brushing your teeth, having breakfast, and going to work. Clay Jones, who spoke here one time, one of my favorite professors at at Biola in my master's program, he did extensive research biblically and historic, I mean, they found documents from Egypt where Egypt talks about how evil the Philistines were. And Egypt wasn't exactly a model of righteousness. How disgusting they were. He wrote an article, and the title of the article is this. We don't hate sin, so we don't understand what happened to the Canaanites. In a a journal called Philosophia Christi. I probably mispronounced that. Every Christian should Google this article and read it. This article, it just explains what's really going on historically with the conquest of Canaan. The conquest of Canaan was an act of divine judgment. It wasn't colonialism or ethnic cleansing. And Israel was the instrument, not because they were righteous, but because God decided to use them. Just like the Assyrians, just like the Babylonians. Lastly, and I'll finish with this. Not only were the Canaanites wicked, the Canaanites were not ignorant. They clearly knew about God's mighty miracles. They clearly were aware of His manifest presence. Cloud by day, fire by night. You don't think they knew about that? They knew That this mighty God, this miracle worker God, had given the Israelites the land. Do you understand that? Knowing about God's miracles and manifest presence, how hard-hearted were the Canaanites to resist him? How rebellious were they? They knew they were not just fighting Israelites. They knew they were fighting the God, Yahweh. They knew it. Joshua chapter 2 verse 8 to 11 Before the spies lay down for the night Rahab went up on the roof who's a Canaanite in Jericho and said to them quote I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and when you came out of Egypt And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Were they ignorant? No. Joshua 5.1, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, listen to this, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. When you're in a courtroom of law, you don't give a verdict until the defendant sees all the evidence against them. Do you understand? God was piling up evidence to show who he was for the Canaanites. And they didn't care. Miracles, signs, and wonders. Manifest presence. Lastly, very last slide. Don't re- we can't forget this. Any Canaanite That repented was not driven out and destroyed. You understand that? Rahab and her entire family were an example of this in Jericho. Joshua 2 12 to 14. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. That you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. When you look in this conversation, what you find Rahab doing and her family is turning to God and repenting. Does that make sense? what is about to happen in 2 Kings, that's why in, this, in these verses, unless we understand the conquest of Canaan, we won't understand the conquest of Judah by the Babylonians. And the other thing is, these events show us windows into who God is that we need to wrestle with and understand. We want When we read the word, we want to what? Tremble. Katie, do you want to come forward? Honestly, when I saw this, I thought, Lord, nobody wants to hear about the conquest of Canaan on Sunday morning. But it matters to God that people stop misunderstanding him. And it matters to God that sometimes pastors stop misrepresenting him, right? It matters to him because, yeah. We don't want to get offended at God, right? Just because we misunderstand him. What I want us to do, and we're just going to finish with this, You know we're going to go into a season. This week, Brooke and I, Lord willing, are going to meet with one of the national directors of Alpha to talk with her about how we can envision and train our group to host Alpha in the civic center in your Belinda. That's a we we have been praying in the center of Orange County and in the center of your Belinda publicly, and God is breaking in and breaking through and lord wants us to prepare ourselves for what's coming. We're going to be doing a corporate fast in a few weeks. We're going to talk about that next week. Again, to prepare ourselves and to prepare the way for what God wants to do. Right? But sometimes what we need to do is just repent. And sometimes and what does that mean? If you struggled with anger, you struggled with lust, you've struggled with Um, you know, lying, gossiping, all the things that are the opposite of the way God is and who God is, what do you do when you do bad stuff like that? You what? You run to God as fast as you can. He's already forgiven you on the cross, great news. So the way is open, you just run to him. And let's just use this, let's just finish with a few minutes where... We just, you, you take what you have done, an attitude you have had, something you have said, and you know, oh, that was against God and against, that was bad. And what you do is you say, Lord, I want to turn to you right now. Thank you for already forgiving me. But now I want to repent and turn to you. Right? We are going into a season of repentance. Some of the stuff that we've been tolerating Uh, God's like, "Ah, I don't want you to tolerate it anymore, because I'm about to move, and I want you to be ready. Maybe just let's just let's just invite the Holy Spirit. It's not going to take a long time. It's just this is just just close your eyes, and it's just Lord, and and whatever comes to mind. Maybe you're doing fine. Maybe you really don't need to repent. That's okay. Not all of you. Lord, I ask Holy Spirit, you are the Holy Spirit, which means that you help us to be holy. You help us to be like God. You help us to think like God. You help us to act like God. You help us to have the attitudes, God, that you have. You help us to speak the kind of words you speak. Holy Spirit, you're always in the business of changing us sanctifying us and so right now Lord we just want to repent some of you have been struggling with lust and people don't never want to share that because it's so embarrassing but even right now just say Lord even with that I come and I, I run to you and I ask that you would cleanse me some of you with anger and you need God, and just say, Lord, in my anger, I run to you right now. I ask that you would free me from my anger. Some of you, it's it's other things. It's maybe gossip or words you've spoken. Right now, just say, Lord, I give you my mouth and my words. Cleanse me. Cleanse my lips. Some of you, it's pride. You have the hard, you you just do not say sorry when you should say sorry, because you're proud. And and you need to go, Lord, here's my pride. I give it to you. You can give me humility. So just for a couple of minutes now, let's turn to God, let's repent. We turn to you right now. Lord. by the authority that Jesus has given us. I speak over you forgiveness. God is not holding your sin against you. He dealt with that at the cross. But I also release in this room the gift of repentance, the gift of change, the gift of turning, the grace to say no to sin and yes to God. Receive it now. If you feel like you need to humble yourself, maybe just get on your knees. If your knees let you do that. Some of you, sometimes just to humble yourself, just to even get on your knees. What, what happens when you bring God your ugliness? He gives you his beauty. So the ugliest parts about you right now, literally give it to him. He takes your, the ugliest parts of who you are and he gives you his beauty. It's, it's the best thing ever. Come with weeping and with mourning. We humble ourselves before you. repent when I've turned to God so many times in my life what I find is literally I run to God and I find kindness love, mercy, forgiveness and grace that's what you're running into right now he's not like an earthly dad he's different kindness, love, mercy and grace, that's what you find when you run into him This week, I would encourage you, if you need to, um, if you have a friend, if you have somebody that you trust, you can call them and even confess your sin to them. Somebody that um, can handle your confession, somebody that is trustworthy, and somebody that cares for you. And I would encourage you to do that this week. Confession. It's important. And I would also encourage you, if you've been making the wrong connections, make the right connections. Say, God, I need intimacy with you this week. Sin is the wrong connection. Make the right connection. And, I pr- and just go be intimate with God this week. Some of you shut off the radio and turn on a worship song. It's going to help. So, Lord, we ask for a deep work in our church. We ask, God, for a season of fasting and repentance and humbling ourselves. And we ask, Lord, that you would prepare us like John the Baptist to help prepare the way of the Lord in your Belinda. And we just pray for this in your name. before you leave, just grab somebody. Say, oh, I gotta confess right now. Grab somebody and have them to pray with you. But if not, just blessings to all of you this week. So, amen.